Hello, I'm Matt Peterson. And I'm Rich Trapier. And this is episode 17 of History on the Table. Welcome back, Rich. It's been a while. Yeah, it hadn't been that long. It's been about a month. A little... Yeah, it feels like a long time, though. We haven't talked much, which we usually talk more in between our sessions. And all it's like this weird, the space-time continuum is all messed up because is time is accelerating way faster, but it also feels like everything is moving at a slower pace. Yeah, I think calendars are the most useless thing this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know if I have anything to report. I did go back and listen to our last episode, and we had an episode in between... Um, with designers on the mic, I I had this whole spiel. It's like, oh, I had to edit out all our Historic Fest updates because everything changed. And then shortly after making the Historic Fest updates in June, of course, it, it changed yet again. And so if you have not heard yet, I'll, I'll be brief about this because um, there's no point in rambling on and on for something that's a year out now. We have postponed Historic Fest until... July 30th through August 1st of 2021. Uh, same venue, the room blocks being transferred over, all that stuff. We're reaching out to sponsors to line them up for 2021. I assume most of them are just going to roll over with all the same goodies. We'll reach out to our special guests and start planning that uh, here shortly um, to start getting the news out again and get everything locked in. And then we'll we'll push for registration and all that stuff. So that's where that stands. I did hear, this did remind me, and uh, my understanding this is a public event, so it's a, I assume it's okay to talk about this. Uh, some of the guys about the Fort, Fort Leavenworth reached out, and they are running, let me get the name exactly right, they are running the Connections Department of Defense Wargaming Conference at the Command General Staff College, June 21st through 25th of 2021. Is that at Leavenworth? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Sorry, that's at that's at Fort Leavenworth, and that is a whole bunch of wargaming seminars, panels, demos, games, all kinds of stuff going on. And I was like, "Oh, that sounds fantastic! Absolutely." Is it open to the public? And they said, "Sure is." So, um, there's that. I do know that getting on the fort is harder it, these days than it is now. So I grew up in Leavenworth. And we used to used to be able to go on no problem. And then when my grandpa would come up, we'd go to the PX and commissary and stuff um, when he was in town. But I do know now it's a little bit of a hassle. But it's been a long time since I've been up to the fort. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, there's there's gonna be a lot going on next year. I think you know there's yeah. everything that was canceled this year. They're gonna want to do next year, and then there's even some things that don't happen every year, and they got canceled this year, so they'll happen next year too. And um, yeah, next, next summer is going to be busy. It's, I think we're going to have to make decisions about what we do rather than this year, just not getting to do anything at all. Hey, you just got to play that card. Like, Oh, I didn't go last year though. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take that card away for later. Okay. Well, good. That's about all the, the news that I have. So if, if you don't have anything else, we might as well talk about some games. Yeah. Let's talk about games. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I mentioned I listened back to episode sixteen. I was like, I was going on and on, like, oh yeah, I've been really good about no retail therapy, not buying stuff, and that's, uh, that's completely changed for me. I bought a ton of stuff, but what about you? And you have games on the shelf? Uh, so the only thing I bought 
new, like I actually spent money on in the last month or so was I got Harpoon 5th Edition from Admiralty Games. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess it's not a game on my shelf. It's a game on my hard drive because I just got the PDFs for it. But I did pick that one up and I got, I think I got the Americans and the Russians there and naval stuff. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing that one. It's, It's a game I've always been interested in. And yeah, I'll, I'll make some table space for it and get some minis out and blow up some ships. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. And so we've talked about the Admiralty trilogy before. That's the modern version of their Fear God and Dreadnought and Command yeah. at Sea, all of those things. Command at Sea is the one that interests me the most more than the others, but I did get Harpoon 5 as well. Uh, I have to ask you now, because I was listening to Chance of Gaming. Mm-hmm. which Richard is a co-host of. <laughs> and I think your advice to Adam was check out the quick start guide. Have you actually read the quick start guide yet? I haven't. It's not very useful. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It is probably the worst quick yes. start guide. Yeah. Like it implies that you'd be able to start playing. Right. And it's not even like a good, okay, so Joe is running the American fleet and he, <laughs> as soon as he recognizes where the Russians are, he launches a couple crew. It's not even that. It's no, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So just by the rule book, yep. they put out a really good product. Nothing has made me, I'm kind of dabbling down this six millimeter U S civil war hole. We'll see how far it goes. But <laughs> the, the thing that has excited me, I'm sorry. Uh, my dog's going to be doing that for a little bit. I'll try to edit out what I can, but the thing that's excited me most about military miniature wargaming is the Admiralty trilogy. They look like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, I don't know. I, I, I love tabletop war games. I don't, the only one that I really play much of is Star Wars Legion. Um, I've played a few with other people here and there. Um, but I just love the idea of just an open table or if it's a, a ground-based game, you know, getting some terrain or whatever. But the the cool thing about naval games is you don't even really need terrain. You just have an open table and you yeah. got guys out there and yeah. So yeah. And then the other games that I picked up recently, I paid for a while ago, or I guess I ordered a while ago and paid for it this month, but uh, Hungarian Rhapsody, the OCS title mm. that I think that was both of ours most anticipated game, wasn't it? It was definitely at the top of the list for the year. Yeah, I'm trying to think what would have topped it, maybe a GCACW title or something like that, but I'm sure it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got that one on my table now. And then just a couple days ago, I didn't realize it was coming this early, but another one that was on my list was Last Stand, The Battle for Moscow, also an MMP game, um, much smaller in scale, but it just it looks pretty cool. Um, I think I got it two days ago, and all I've done literally is just open up the box and look at the rule book. So. Nice. I just, I just bought Hungarian Rhapsody. I did not have a pre-order in for it. Yeah. And then so when it came, I was like, oh, I need to get that in. And then, of course, I missed the boat, whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm sure it'll show up on cool stuff and I'll get it, whatever. But cool stuff seemingly has no multi-man publishing products listed. And I don't know if it's because of coronavirus or what, yeah. but it used to be NWS has it, doesn't it? Um, I'm not sure. I know that AGR Sales has it because that's okay. who I just purchased it from. Uh, yeah, in general, I'm pretty sure NWS carries MMP stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, nice. Anything else? Uh, no, unfortunately, that's it. I need to buy more stuff. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I was I was picky and choosy here because like 
a lot of this stuff actually was a whole bunch of RPG stuff. I'm going deep, and I'll talk about this later in the Cthulhu stuff, in large part because of Lovecraft Country, which I want to talk about before we wrap up the episode. But So I, I picked out just some highlights of War Games, some things I'm most excited about. Uh, one is Central America, which I picked up because it was recommended as having like a unique air and helicopter support system built in. And it's a so it's one war game but you can play a series of different engagements so like it covers different battles in central america does that make sense like you could do the football war and or the soccer oh, okay. war, whatever it's called and then you could go do a different one but there's like three so just like generic 20 30 year period or yeah i mean that's i say from- generic but 50s 60s 70s ish yeah that, Probably that 80s kind of thing too because then they get the drug wars yeah, I don't know how far it goes because it also probably runs into like when it actually came out. Like, I don't know how many, like, I don't know how much contemporary was, stuff was coming out in 1987. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. Yeah, so it's got seven campaign scenarios, five intermediate scenarios, and four introductory scenarios. And That's a lot. so there's actually, yeah, and there's th- this game actually has a shit ton of stuff packed inside of it. Uh, like, I bought it. And like, oh, cool, I'll check out these helicopter rules just for this other purpose that will probably never come to fruition. And I started diving in, and Mitchell Lane was the one who recommended this game, and then he pulled it out, and he was playing it. And then um, I had some other stuff on the table, but I finally started to spend some time with it. And it's like, okay, here's your basic rules, and it is dense. It's not hard. It's just everything is very well defined and way more details provided than needs be mm-hmm. and so you end up with a super dense rule book and then there's like three of them because there's uh a, sorry one is a scenario booklet i should back up one is just your normal game rules and then there's kind of like this whole rule book based off intervention and i don't i'm curious if that's like did next war borrow from that either the original or the current reiteration i i don't know but uh really cool game I like the map. It's definitely a product of board games from the 80s. The counters could use some major updating. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a cool game to, to track down and mess around with. So that's that's on my table now. I had some other stuff down that I'll talk about later that I picked up. Have you played Vietnam? 65 uh, to 75? No, I have it on my shelf. Okay. I need to play it. Okay. Because this one just kind of looks like Vietnam. I didn't know how much, if they were at all similar or... I was just curious. Well, they're both, they're both that series right. of yeah. victory <laughs> games, right? Yeah, I mean, both I victory games both came around at the same to... time. Both jungle terrain, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although I would, most people who have played both games, I'm sure, would tell us that Vietnam's the better game. At least it seems to be praised a lot more. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one of my big ones on the table this winter. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. I, we should do that one together because that's been something that's eluded me for a long time. Sure. Um, the other one is Renegade Legion Prefect, which that's is another one Mitch got you into. <laughs> yes, it was. Basically, it was a comment like, buy this now before it's unavailable because <laughs> it's like 15 bucks. But it um, it's this whole planetary invasion game. So like you can just do a ground war. You can have space combat involved. I think you can go either or or a combined thing. But you can combine it with other games from the Renegade Legion system. So it's this future 
space combat game. I think there's a whole bunch of lore behind it that surrounds it. I don't know a ton about it other than it's got a pretty unique looking map. Um, I I asked him, I said, all right, I've got space on my table. Should I put down Central America or Central America or Renegade Legion? And he said Central America, so that's what I went with. <laughs> and then I have been itching for an old school Hex Encounter like strategic scale uh, fantasy war game. I think it's something that's been missing from the hobby for a long time since I've gotten in. Like I can't think of anything really that's come out in the last five or six years that would fit that. And someone was selling a copy of Dragon Pass, which is in fact a fantasy hex encounter game. It's set in the Glorantha realm. It used to be published by Chaosium. And with the opportunity to pounce on it, I was like, heck yes, I want to play one of these games so bad. I want like a big scale hex encounter game where I'm commanding like orcs and goblins and dragons and ints or you know whatever it is. And we just I haven't seen anything like that since I've got into the war game hobby. Yeah, I can't. I'm trying to think of anything, but I mean, when I think of that type of game, I mean, I just think about games from the 70s. You know, I can yep. I can see them with the the wizard and the bright colors on the box and everything. That's oh yeah, it was a it was a cool thing to do in the 70s. And we haven't seen a lot of it since then. I think you could do a lot of... So there was this... Um, not IDW. Um, Vertigo, which is the... Indi- it's not independent, but it's like the small print run of DC Comics. And mm-hmm. they had a comic called... Um, I think it was just called Hinterlands. It may have been um, out it of the familiar, Hinterlands. sounds familiar, yeah. The, the premise is that after the fall of mankind... All of these, as Hinterkind, Hinterkind is what it was called. After the fall of mankind, all these fantasy creatures come come out of the woodworks, basically. And I've stared at the U.S. Civil War map and carved that thing up <laughs> in the fantasy realms. And I want to transplant Hinterkind on it, you know, like have a have a species of, of crocodilians that, yeah. that hang out in New Orleans and stuff. And then the centaurs um, and the Great Plains. Yeah, exactly, right? And then, like, the big twist at the end of Volume 1 of the comic, I think it's two or three volumes. It was okay, but a cool concept is at the end of the first volume, uh, the Nazis show up in air blimps from Europe, and they're all vampi- <laughs> they're all vampires. I was like, that, and I just look at the U.S. Civil War map, I was like, this is the perfect thing for it. Yeah. Have you read so. the book, I think it's called Of Dyson Men? Sort of about the, like the history of Dungeons and Dragons came out oh, maybe five years ago. Someone I've heard someone talk about it. I have not read. Okay, it. it's it's a good book. It's worth definitely worth a read. But the author, sort of as he's talking about the history of the game, also talks here and there about his personal game. And in uh, his personal game, it's it's the United States map, but it's I don't know if it's a fantasy setting or a post apocalyptic setting. I can't remember exactly, but in any case, obviously D and D races and monsters and everything in the United States. And I remember that Las Vegas was run by mind flayers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice, 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 nice. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it would be a cool cool thing to do. Oh yeah, um, but I don't know. I'll never get around to it. So those are just the few things I wanted to talk about. Like I said, oh, I did get a crokinole board. Oh yeah. Oh man, that is so much fun. <laughs> uh, so if you don't know, Crokinole is a disc flicking game from the 1800s and people rave about them, but for a long time you'd have to go spend like 300 bucks to go get a board. And then Mayfair has done 
Kickstarters from some like mass produced boards and they've gotten mixed reviews, but it sounded like their last print run was really good. Anyways, they had another Kickstarter. I did it. I think I got it in like a month or two months because they had already like planned on like, Oh, we'll have 500 people back this. No problem. Let's go ahead and get 500 on the way. So the turnaround time was amazing. And ever since getting it, my wife's like, we put the kid to bed and she's like, want to play a game? And so we've been playing that a ton. It is. Yeah. Uh, How long does it take ton. to play? Like 10, 15 minutes? Cause oh, yeah. I mean. Just trying to get all your discs in the hole, right? Well, it's and there's like scoring for not getting okay. in the hole. And then you kind of cancel each other out like in um, in cornhole or, or washers okay. or anything like that. Um, and then it's just first 100. Or I think in tournament they play, they just like one round is your allotment of 12 discs and whoever scores the most points that way wins the round. So, and sometimes we'll just play one game to a hundred or we'll play best, best two out of three or anything like that. But, um, super fun. And I would guarantee that since you have kids in the house that are able to play, I, I bet it was something that you could play with kids and it oh, looks great. I think they look it, yeah. really nice. Uh, but that's a, that's about it for me. That's at least all I'll talk about. Uh, so I have been reading a a good amount since last time we got together. Um, a whole bunch of interests here and there. Uh, a couple things I'll just talk about. I read two quick books. One is The Battle of Quezon, The History and Legacy of the Major Battle. That preceded the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. This was okay. Uh, it was really slim pickings on the... So I went back to Quezon... Uh, because that engagement still fascinates me and I this was okay I would skip this one it was really more like okay here's some lead up okay here's some conclusion and that tiny slice in the middle was uh Kason. yeah I guess it's set an okay framework a, a book that did a better job of that was Crossroads of Freedom by James Mc, McPherson so it's interesting if you go look for like a good book on Antietam most people recommend Stephen Sears landscape turned red. And then a lot of people also talk about crossroads of freedom. And then there's not really a whole lot outside of that. That gets that I could find that was like highly recommended. I'm sure you could go find any old Antietam book, but those seem to be the cream of the crop crossroads of freedom is much shorter and it's much, um, more about again framing the battle much mm-hmm. more of the book is about what led up to it and the ramifications afterwards and the battle coverage itself is is pretty quick um what i know so we're playing none but heroes which i'll talk about later and so i wanted to go back in and read another book and i know what rex did is he started with crossroads of freedom which gave him some knowledge to work with and then he moved on to landscape turned red it was pretty good hmm and yeah, the then, only thing I've read by McPherson is his big one is what Battle Cry of Freedom. Yeah, which yeah, I would like to read someday. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I mean, it's obviously he talks a little bit about the battles, but it's not so much about the battles. It's about the war and the politics and society and everything else behind it. But it's definitely interesting for setting the stage for the entire Civil War. I have another one of his called This Mighty Scourge, and I've heard that's a really good one. I think that's more about kind of disproving and analyzing some myths and beliefs about the civil war. I don't think it's so much a like battle by battle recount, but that's on my yeah. shelf. I'd, I'd really like to read that real quick. Then uh, another game I'll talk about is speed of heat later on. I, so to pair with that, I read clashes, which 
I'm surprised I even like the book. The full title's Clashes, Air Combat Over North Vietnam by Marshall L. Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L. This is super detailed about dogfighting and tactics, but I am learning so much from this book. I, I didn't know like a jet in this time in Vietnam only carried like, well, now I can't remember, but like 50 machine gun rounds or like cannon rounds, right? Yeah. I mean, like the, it, which was so surprising to me. It's something I didn't even think about because really that's not the kind of engagement they were going for. If you're getting in that close to someone, you're screwed anyways. And like, it was just so mind blowing and it's fascinating. It's really dry. It's really dense. It reads really slowly. Um, but for a while there, I was on a really big kick of just reading a few pages a night. And even as dense as it was, I was super enjoying it and just learning a ton about really about jet combat, which is something I know diddly about. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about it either, even though I've always been sort of an air force geek and everything. Um, but yeah, like the technical details are interesting. And, uh, I, I know, you know, if you look at, you know, downtown would be the Vietnam book, but the one I've been playing mm-hmm. a lot more love lately is red storm, which is a little more modern 85, but, um, Doug Bush, who has done a lot of that research, and you can tell he's done it. I mean, you'll find that a lot of a lot of your guys, you're going to get into one air combat, and then you're going to blow everything you have, and it doesn't matter that your planes are okay; you're still done because you're out of ammo. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that was enough. Yep, that's exactly true. Um, and I had a thought I was going somewhere with that, but um, I'll just let it yeah. flutter on by. And then we're both reading a book, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about this one, and that's Shattered Sword, Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of the Battle of Midway. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you talk about this because I'm, I'm not struggling, but I had started a Midway book earlier this year, and I should have finished it because that's a battle I don't know diddly about. And this book is really more about a deep dive critical analysis of the midway story that's already been told and so i'm really lost in the weeds because i don't know the story of midway itself yeah i'm a little bit opposite there so i was i was in the navy i spent a lot of time i mean like pacific naval stuff was was just always my interest so i knew or thought i knew a fair about about the battle of midway already um which is interesting because that's kind of the whole point of this book is no, you've heard some incorrect stories, and um, it's told mostly from the Japanese perspective, which I think is interesting, but it's not like the Japanese perspective, like, oh, you know, this is, the Japanese were great and everything, and we shouldn't have, I mean, it's it's very much about the Japanese errors that caused them to lose that battle. Um, I'm really enjoying the book. I'm maybe halfway, two-thirds of the way done with it. Um, it is very detailed. I mean, he literally, he sets the stage and then he goes into it like hour by hour. This is what happened. This is where the ships were. This is what direction they were. Um, and then just to go back to what you were just saying about the air combat book over Vietnam, um, he talks a lot about the ammunition of these planes too, which obviously now we're talking, you know, 20 years earlier than that. So even more limited ammunition and limited in what they can do. And a lot of the Japanese planes, they actually had two kinds of ammunition. They had the 20 millimeter shells, uh, which would make quick work of the American planes. Um, but they didn't have that many of those. And then the, the other shells, I can't remember what the size was, but they're like basically just like normal machine gun shells. And they're like, yeah, they're shooting up the American planes with those and nothing's really happening because the American planes are too tough for that. So, 
really interesting so far. It talks a lot about, um, and I think this is interesting too, sort of as a war gamer, um, we do a lot of maybe putting certain people up on pedestals, you know, look at people like Rommel and, you know, we talk about what geniuses they were and there's always the joke about how great the SS was and they have to be stronger than everyone else. And we kind of do the same thing with, with Yamamoto. Um, mm-hmm. And this book basically says, no, he, he really screwed up a lot of stuff with that battle. <laughs> um, his, his legend was based on the fact that he kind of um, convinced a lot of people in the Japanese army that they couldn't, or Navy command structure that they couldn't live without him threatened to resign a couple times. And then every time he didn't get his way, he just threatened to resign again. So. Yeah. And the, the one thing I appreciate about this book, well, I, I appreciate it. All. It's a very well-written book. Again, I wish I had finished the battle midway by Craig Simmons earlier this year. So I just knew I need a more story based approach first before you get this lost in the weeds. But yeah, one thing I, I do that. appreciate, he goes, uh, in, the listener or the reader can be forgiven if this is confusing <laughs> because he's like, that's the point. Like, that's how big a shit show things were already. And, like, how could the Japanese Navy even make sense of all this stuff? Like, this is how confusing it is. And then he confuses it. And then, like, he'll he'll even say, like, and pour yourself a long drink or a yeah. big drink because, yeah. yeah. Or there's yeah. two authors. It's uh, Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tolley. They're very proud of themselves for disproving some myths and legends behind Midway. But I think it's all very well researched and well written. Yeah. How, how far along to it are you? I am. Well, for it's like I'm at the 47% mark or something like that. So okay. I'm about right about halfway. Probably not quite there yet. But basically after the first major American attack before the Japanese counterstrike, he spends a whole chapter talking about the damage to the Japanese ships and the death toll and everything. And all of a sudden, I mean, they do a great job of personalizing it. All of a sudden, you're not mm. talking about ships shooting each other. You're talking about thousands and thousands of people burning to death. And it's just, mm. holy crap, this is terrible. Interesting. So it's good. It's really good. Yeah. And what then, else have you been reading? <laughs> the other book I'm reading is not very exciting, but hopefully it'll end up making me some money. The Project Management Body of Knowledge. I am studying to be a PMP. Well, studying to get my certification, so. And, and which ward does that cover? Uh, it covers future wars <laughs> between <laughs> between me and IT people. <laughs> nice. nice. So, nice, yeah, nice. I mean, I haven't had as much time for gaming as I wanted just because I wanted to get this test uh, done. Now seemed like a good time to do it. So I've got it scheduled for two weeks. I'm going to pass it then and then get back to playing games. Nice. Well, yeah. I hope you uh, you'll do a great job and good luck. Yeah, thanks. Uh, let's talk about what we have what we have been playing. Um, so you've got the featured game this month, so I'll I'll dive in. Or actually, why don't why don't you start and then we'll do yeah. me and then we'll go to your featured okay. game. The only one I've got on the table that I haven't played a whole lot of is Hungarian Rhapsody. So I do have it set up. I've read the rule book. I've been pushing counters around a little bit um, when I have a few spare minutes. And I mean, so far it's good. It's you know it's OCS. Um, there's a lot of units on the board. There's some pretty big stacks. So, um, I've only been playing the, like the first scenario yet, which is really just a one mapper. I've got both maps set up, so we haven't done anything over in Budapest yet. Everything is over near Debrecen right now. Um, but it's kind of cool. I mean, it's OCS. There's some interesting things about it. The way the Russians come in, you get these, these front markers, which is a, 
on sort of a different way for them to show where their supply is coming from. Um, and basically, you know, the Russians are trying to come in and surround the Germans and kick them out. But the Russians are at the very edge of their supply lines and can't do as much as they want to do. Um, the Russians also in this game have some really interesting uh, rebuilding rules where um, they said it was his- historic. This is the way they did it. But basically, you can't start rebuilding a division until the entire division is gone. So basically like, oh, okay, this guy got flipped. He's gone. I'm going to put him in the pile. When the whole pile is there, they rebuild the whole division together. So there's definitely some interesting parts about it that are different from the other games. Um, Once you get over to the Budapest side, you get goulash counters to feed your guys, which I think is cool. Um, But I haven't gotten to there yet. So Um, early on in it, but I'm enjoying it so far. So it's, it's worth noting. That's interesting. I I didn't know about the change to rebuilding. Um, OCS is not divisional scale. It'll be several counters that make up a division. Yeah. So so you need to lose all those counters before you can bring back. Now, what if the counter's not eliminated? Can you use a replacement to flip it back to its full strength side? No, I think I, I have to check the exact way the rule reads, but it's okay. a, you basically have to like, and there's a separate card that you know lists everything in that division and you've got to have it filled up before you can bring them all back so it's it's kind of weird but apparently the russians that's that's the way they were doing it at the time interesting i i did not know about that change that's cool um i'm getting a, a little itch for ocs it's been a long time since i played anything um yeah from was OCS. it last year donkey Kong? is that i know you played what beyond the rhine I did. I did a follow up. I started. I started a follow up game of Beyond the Rhine after that because I wanted to see it play out more. But we tried to do play by email, and uh, that's just not my jam. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, obviously, we're all adapting to this right now, whether we want to do play by email or play online with Vassal. But and we're all missing face to face. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so our Axis Empires game continues to roll on the brits have landed in england to start taking that back there was this whole for the last month or so i've been struggling i had a foothold in spain and that foothold is pretty much gone now which is interesting because case blue basically took place in spain instead (laughs) of russia um i mean really he spent he sent all his strong units over to spain and then kick the Germans or um, the Britons in the U.S. out. The, we had also landed in uh, Africa, but so how did how did that work politically with Spain? Did Spain get invaded by Germany, or were they allied with someone? Or the fascists won the civil war, and then he was able to bring them in as a okay Axis minor. Uh, and so it's like, all right, back to the building blocks. And this game has been over for a long time. Um, it's more of just going through the paces, but it's like, oh, cool. We lost our, we have some troops in Europe, uh, but now they're out of supply and can't really do anything. And now we're finally in England. So that's, that's still going. Yeah. When you told me that Britain was invading England, I figured it wasn't going well for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did a, so the other, I've been messing around with a Twitch stream, and so my brother and I were going to play Imperial Struggle. We ended up playing Twilight Struggle. Uh, I read through the Imperial Struggle rulebook. Sounds like a great game. I opened up the Vassal module, and I was just like, how do I play this game? <laughs> um, so Imperial Struggle looks beautiful. 
It seems like it's a solid, if you're unfamiliar, Imperial Struggle Struggle is made by the same people who made Twilight Struggle, uh, the same designers. They're both from GMT, and it covers England and France, you know, during the period of the American Revolution and all that stuff. But you, you basically play a wide-spanning and fight several wars between the British and the French. Uh, looks beautiful. Seems like it's a lot of fun. It's way... It's like heavily Euro. It's like action role selection game. Uh, but it seems fun. I just I opened up the Vassal module, got overwhelmed. And it's like, why don't we just play Twilight Struggle? I did... Uh, I've been pushing around speed of heat counters. I've talked about Wings of the Motherland before on the podcast, which is the fighting wing series from Clash of Arms games. Speed of heat is the air power game. Air Power is in the Air Power series, which is also made by J.D. Webster and made by Clash Farms Games. Air Power is just basically the jet version of the Fighting Wings series. It's pretty interesting. I, I was doing some physical stuff, and then I also opened up the Vassal module. I think if someone went in and updated that Vassal module to do the automation of like the log sheets to you know, maintain your speed and, and all that stuff, which is, it's not that hard of exercise to go through. It'd be really nice if the Vassal module was automated, though. Yeah, I really want to see that game played, mostly just because I want to compare it to Red Storm and Downtown and all those. Yeah, I don't, um, I mean, so I've only played the um, the World War One version of those games. Yeah, and that's <laughs> speed of slowness. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, they're, I guess, I mean, there would obviously be some similarities. Yeah, I'd like to do the same, actually. Um, there is a lot, although it's very incremental in, okay, read to here, go do Scenario Training Mission 2, which is basically you fly around some pylons. And so you get in the practice of messing with speed, recording your logs, all those things, and then it's like, okay, now read this section. All right, go do Scenario Training scena- training Scenario 2. And uh, so it it is very incremental in its approach in learning the game. And from what I've seen so far, I would recommend that. And I'm assuming that wings of the motherland is the same way. I'm hoping it's the same way and we'll go from there. Yeah. That's how unconditional surrender does it. They have starter scenarios or first one is Poland scenario. And like the first three scenarios are basically solo because there's no point in anyone playing the second one, but it just teaches you the mechanics. And, you know, if you remember last time, Axis Empires does a really great job of that, too. I mean, you can dive into the campaign game, but the scenarios are designed to, okay, here's how you learn, here's how you do combat, and here's how you just learn the game by playing the scenarios in this order. I'm really, I tend to want to jump into the campaign game, (laughs) and that's starting to, like, take a toll on me. Like, we're playing, I'll go to None But Heroes next. Uh, So, just because... The anniversary of the Battle of Antietam's coming up, I said, hey, I want to play as much of the None But Heroes campaign as I can, which is 100-something turns. And it's like, just by the time I'm grokking this, we'll probably run out of time for the amount of... I, I wouldn't just commit a couple months to it and then move on to something else. But yeah. None But Heroes is multi-man publishing. It's line of battle series. I If you go way back, I played to take Washington, forgot most of it. And we've played about a month's worth so far. So four, I think we've played four, three or four games. Um, it's a fantastic system. The The movement and combat rules are, are deceptively simple. It's all about this command structure. 
if you read through the rules, he says, um, he being um, Dean Essig, the, the point of the game is you give your orders and you see the bloodshed that ensues. So, you know, in OCS, you can attack and retreat and withdraw and, and make a new front and do everything you want to do. In line of battle, you give an attack order and say, okay, go attack and take take the cornfield, right? Well, you can't get to the cornfield and then all of a sudden shoot over to the West Woods instead. You attack the cornfield regardless of... Now, there may be some things that cause your attack to get disrupted, but if all of a sudden there's a, a massive Confederate front in front of you, well, you've given the order. So, all right, let's see the results. And then there's this whole kind of mini-game going on of issuing commands and when do generals accept commands and all this stuff. Probably next month I'll do a full review of Line of Battle and, and None But Heroes specifically. It does a fantastic job, I think, of capturing the Battle of Antietam and the... Th- reasons i find that battle so interesting um there's a lot going on the rules may be the tactical movement you know the actual movement and actual rules of combat and firing your artillery may be really simple but knowing what the heck you're supposed to be doing is is really tough mm-hmm. i i told my opponent I was like, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I feel like McClellan because I look at your forces (laughs) on playing the Union side. It's like, oh, wow, he outnumbers me so bad. He's got (laughs) 200,000 men. (laughs) Which is absurd because I know it's not true, but it's like that's how I feel is McClellan. Because the bullshit right now is McClellan's not awake, so I get one pregame order. And I'm committed to that for like an hour and 15 minutes, which is about five or six turns. I, I, I can't remember if we start at 545 or at six o'clock, but McClellan is now finally awake and I can actually start giving orders. But basically it's, I took the historical approach and I've, we've been fighting in the, uh, in the cornfield basically to get the battle started. But I just like, look at him. I was like, damn, he's got a lot of guys over here. And of course I've got like 18 million cores you know, 18 armies sitting over there ready to go crush him, but uh, it just seems really intimidating. It's like, man, I sound I sound like McLellan, but it's a it's a fantastic game. It's funny because, you know, Mitch and I have been playing, uh, play testing the expansion for Red Storm. We've been playing Baltic Approaches, and we've played two or three scenarios in addition to all the times we've played Red Storm, but it's just like every time we play, he's... I mean, he's just so much better at it than me, and he just completely destroys me. But every time he plays, I find myself complaining. Well, I just don't have enough planes. I don't have enough missiles. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. And no, I, no matter which side I pick, it just so happens that I'm the side that doesn't have enough. So I think maybe <laughs> the problem isn't with which side I'm picking, but it might be behind the player. So just hmm. I'm starting to suspect that I'm the McClellan. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then just real quick before we talk about Empire of the Sun, spoiler alert, I we basically got through like five guys moving and setting up Altar of Freedom, which is a six millimeter scale uh, US Civil War miniatures game, and we played that on Tabletop Simulator. It's, it's very simple, but I don't play miniatures games, and mm-hmm. there's some... First off, we start off, and I'm playing the Confederates now just to take the opposite side of what I'm doing in None But Heroes. But my whole point was to pair this with None But Heroes and do Antietam with Altar of Freedom. And it's like, all right, the Union can set up wherever. I was like, not wherever, but they can basically set up, you know, in the East Woods or on the other side of Antietam. I was like, well, that's kind of crap. 
<laughs> and then it's like there's no limitation on when the cores activate. It's like, well, that's kind of crap because, like, obviously, if the union had made a combined effort, I think I in McPherson's book or something like that, at no point in time were more than 20,000 Union soldiers in, engaged in fighting during the Battle of Antietam at one time, which mm-hmm. is just mind-blowing. So, like, if they had gotten their ass act together and attacked as, you know, in uh, at the same time, and so I'm like, well, this isn't going to be fair because you're just going to be able to attack with everyone. But then, finally, it's got these, like, Generals have special abilities and special rule sets, and so a little bit of that that gives it the Antietam flavor is coming out. Um, and so we'll keep playing that. I'll report on that. I do have some interest in 6mm. I think 6mm looks cool. Also, you don't have to paint as in near as much detail. And my big turnoff to miniatures is, is painting, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're just playing around with it to put it, put it, put it through the paces. Uh, and we'll see. Cool. Well, should we fast forward 80 years and go to the Pacific War? Yeah. Pacific Once Front. upon a time, there was a <laughs> great naval battle. Took largest battlefield in history, I think. So, yeah, my, the featured game this month is Empire of the Sun. Uh, it's a strategic level game. Well, strategic operational. This is kind of a... I think most people would say it's strategic, but I have the sort of personal definition that may or may not be right. But in a strategic game, you get to manage the economy. You get to decide what gets bought and produced, when it gets bought and produced. You get to do politics, possibly. None of that is in this game. Um, Your reinforcements come on a schedule, um, and usually they're delayed because war in Europe is more important than the war in the Pacific at this time. once certain things happen, um, you can stop the delays and get your, your units sooner. But it, it, for the most part, everything just comes in on a reinforcement schedule. And the game is mostly about supply lines. Um, so in my mind, this is a very large scale operational game, not a strategic game. So not that that really matters what I call it. That's just how <laughs> I define it. So. To, for In full disclosure, case, yeah. on, on our, for full disclosure, I want to point out, Rich calls it grand operational, which is fine. I understand your point. Mark <laughs> Herman does call it call it strategic. So yeah, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the game was devi- designed by oh, that's right, Mark Herman, uh, and p- published by GMT Games. Originally came out in two thousand five, and it's just been constantly reprinted. I think I have the twenty sixteen version. I saw it just a couple days ago. It's up on P five hundred for now. A fourth printing of it, so it's mm. very popular. Keeps getting reprinted. Um, I would imagine, I think Twilight Struggle is their all-time most popular game, but I would imagine Empire Sun's probably pretty high up on the list. So, oh, yeah, this is definitely an evergreen game for them. Yeah. So the the, the scale of the game, um, as far as the battlefield, is it's literally from India to Hawaii. It's the entire Pacific Ocean and a little bit of the Indian Ocean as well. Um, it takes place over, it starts... The game technically it starts in December 41. December 41 is literally just one turn of the Japanese player playing two specific cards and doing what he wants to do. Um, Everyone that I've ever talked to about this game, and I would highly encourage this myself, says skip December 41 and start the game in 1942. Because the 41 turn, there's literally nothing for the Americans to do. And for the Japanese, there's... 
there's more to lose than there is to gain. Because if you don't achieve enough objectives, you can kind of set yourself back and make it harder for yourself. It's just so much easier to just start the game in 42, which is a full turn. Um, a turn is three months. So there's four turns a year, 12 turns total. The game ends in August 45 if it doesn't end sooner. Um, and basically the victory conditions for the Japanese are hold out for the most part. Um, if, if the Japanese are still alive at the end of turn 12, haven't surrendered or anything, they win the game. The Americans have a few ways to end the game before that. Um, the Japanese can knock the Americans out by reducing their political will to zero. Um, trying to think if there's any other ways the Japanese can auto win. I'm not sure. Um, but the Americans can win by doing a multi-turn blockade of Japan, by invading Japan, um, Basically, those are the two main ways. So it's it's tough for the Americans to win. You have to plan several turns in advance. If you're getting up to like turn 10 and you haven't figured out how you're going to win, you're not going to win <laughs> because you have to plan that a few turns in advance, um, which is, you know, historically accurate. I mean, the Americans had to decide on a campaign of island hopping and how they wanted to approach the islands of Japan and everything. So in that sense, it's accurate. It is tough for the Americans to win, um, but it's that doesn't make it a bad game either. It's just that's just what the VCs are. Um, the game is really about, like I said, it's mostly about supply lines and using air power to disrupt supply lines. Um, so one of the cool things about this game, every game sort of has its thing that makes it different from every other game. And for Empire of Sun, I would say it's about uh, air power zones of influence. So these can come from ground-based air units. Uh, they can come from uh, carriers, light and heavy carriers, light and full carriers. Um, and basically, this is where the vassal module of this game really, really shines. Um, because every air unit on the board has either a two or three hex radius around it where it's projecting its air power at all times. Um, and on the vassal module, you can turn that on and you can see all those little bubbles all over the map and you can go, ooh, here's a little path that my ships can get through without ever being noticed by their airplanes. Or now I need to make sure that I have air power in here to counter their air power. Otherwise, my guys are going to be out of supply, blah, blah, blah. Um, so air power is, although it would be considered a naval game, air power is the most important part of this game because that's where you, that's where you project your power. That's where you disrupt supply lines. And that's also where you are allowed to react to enemy operations, which is, I think the other probably big thing about this game that's really cool. So, um, it's a card based game. Each player gets a hand of cards. Um, you start off. I can't remember the exact starting numbers, but the Americans get more over the course of the game and the Japanese get less over the course of the game. By the end of the game, the Americans probably going to have seven cards in his hand and the Japanese are only going to get four. But the American has to do a lot more with those cards too. There's different kinds of cards. Some of them allow you to change political will. Some of them allow you to change the political situation in China or India. Um, some of them are reaction cards that you can play when the other player plays something against you. But most of them are basically used for what's called operations. So like in any card-based game, there's always a number at the top. You can either do the number or the event. Um, in this case, the number and the event go together pretty well. So usually the only reason that you would use 
Um, the event over the number is if you want to activate a specific HQ. Like if I want to activate the HQ in Hawaii to move those guys around, or if I want to activate the British HQ over in India to move those guys around, they have influence over different guys. Um, and then it does have a number that allows you to tell how many units you can activate. Um, the other thing about not using the event itself is every card, anytime you play it to run an operation, has what's called an intelligence condition. So basically, the scale of these turns is very long. Like I said, a turn is three months long. So all of these things are happening over a widespread of time. And anytime you play an operation, there's a chance that your opponent knows that you did it. So you know, you may think, okay, well, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to send these Marines in. I'm going to send this aircraft carrier in, and we're going to take this island right here. And the Japanese player rolls well for intelligence. And all of a sudden you have three Japanese carriers and two battleships waiting for you there. And you get your ass kicked all the way back to where you came from. Mm. So mm. it's, it can be very frustrating, but it's the good kind of frustrating because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a fog of war thing. Um, I'm I'm hoping I can get my guys in here. I'm hoping that I can slip in here with my minimal resources because I just don't have a lot because it's early in the war. Um, but I might not be able to. But here's what I can do is I can play fewer units and I can play it for the operations value instead of the event value. And then he's got to roll a little bit better to make that reaction. But then again, anytime I go through one of his air zones as a part of my operation, he's going to get a plus two to that role. So again, air power is they're going to notice you moving around and they're going to be able to react, react to you a lot better. So so with the with the intelligence role and uh -huh. having to be able to make that reaction, is that just something like, OK, if you pass your intelligence role, you're able to move X amount of troops or, you know, aircraft carriers here. Is that so what that? So you can you you can move the same number that was in the offensive player's operations value. But mm. the offensive player might still be moving more because let's say I play a card and it's got an uh, an operations value of 3. But I'm playing it for the event and the event says if you use Southwest Pacific headquarters the operations value is you can activate 6 units instead of 3. So I'm going to send in 6 units if he rolls and makes his his intelligence roll, then he's going to get to send in three. Gotcha. Plus the units that were already in the hex that I'm invading will. So, you know, if he had a couple in there already, then they'll get to partake in the battle automatically. I assume those things need to be within somewhat proximity. Like, yes. And I that's, mean, like, yeah, that's based on the operations value as well. So basically, okay. Basically, it's uh, for ships, it's like five hexes per for ground units. If you're moving over ground, um, it's going to be really slow because most of the train is either jungle or rough. So I think it's it's like two to go into a jungle hex and three to go in a rough hex. But the operations value tells you how far the guys can move during that time as well. So if I'm playing a three ops card and re you react, you can react from up to 15 hexes away for ships. And then for air units... Um, basically you have to control airfields so that you can hop around and based on the aircraft's range, you will get that number of hops. So if your aircraft has a range of four, then you can make one hop to an airfield four away, another hop to an airfield four away, and a third hop to an airfield four away. And then you can attack anything within your radius from there. And then afterwards, everyone that participated in the battle gets to move to another place and they don't have to go back to where they came from either. They get that same, you know, movement limitation of 
you know, five hexes per operations value or whatever. Ground units can't move afterwards, but planes, ground-based planes and ships can all go to a different place. So a lot of times after a battle, you'll be able to rearrange your forces a little bit as well. Yeah. So the basics of the game is you each have a hand of cards and you each just play one card at a time. Um, when you go through your whole hand, you go to the next turn. It's 12 turns total. Um, like I said, there are reaction cards. You always have the opportunity to save a card for a future operation. There are some rules as how and when you can use those. Um, but those are always nice to have because you can, you get a card and you're like, ah, oh, this card is really good for this situation. And that situation is probably going to be next turn for me. I can't really use it this turn. So I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to put it in next turn's hand. And now next turn, I've basically got eight cards in my hand instead of seven. And then, yeah, so you make it through the whole game. Uh, it, if, if you make it to the end of turn 12 and the Japanese have not collapsed, then the Japanese win. Basically, at that point, the Americans and the Japanese are in peace talks um, because the Americans are ticked off that we haven't done anything yet. Um, and if, if not, then if the Americans invade the completely invade the Japanese home islands, not just one hex of it, but you've got to take the main island, uh, then, the, then the Americans win. But that's tough, too, because every Japanese home island hex, except for one, has like an inherent garrison on it. So if he's got a full strength army there, he's basically got three steps that you have to knock down to take that hex. And then if you're doing an amphibious assault, it makes it even harder. Um, but by that point, you're probably... I mean, the the game that the last game that I played, it came down to the last one. I was playing the the allies... I did not win by the end of turn 12, mostly because I, I missed a couple rules. I should have had some amphibious supply points given back to me. Um, but I, I, he literally had zero air, unit, air power on the board. All he had left was a bunch of armies in Japan waiting for me wow. to come invade him. So, so hmm. it's good. What is it's like, what does a round of combat look like? So it's, it's interesting. Um, a round of combat is very simple. It's just going to be each each guy rolling one die. But basically, well, sort of two. Because the, the first die roll is going to ter- determine that intelligence conditions and, and whether they're surprised or not. Um, so depending on what the defensive player does that's going to affect combat as well. If the defensive, so it's a, everything is just a single D10. Um, so if the defensive player rolls a nine, which is it's, it's zero to nine, um, then he's surprised. And he's not going to be able... The, at that point, the combat will take place in two rounds. Attacker first, and then surviving defenders get to attack back. But most of the time, they attack simultaneously. Um, and there's die roll bonuses for that as well. But basically, what you do is you add up all of your points. Um, so typically, if I'm sending in maybe three carriers and two planes and a battleship or something, I'm going to end up with something like 50 attack points. Um, and then I'm going to roll my D10 with a few die roll modifiers here and there. And my result um, for air naval combat, which comes first, is is either going to be a half or one, I think. I'd, or I think you can do a quarter also if I roll low. So I would take my 55, and if I roll a one, I get 55, and I get to knock 55 points off of his his guys, which 55 points, if I that's a lot. That's going to be enough to like sink three ships. Um, so... Um, or if I get a quarter, then, you know, I can only 
55 divided by a quarter, whatever that comes out to. And every one of his ships has a defensive value as well. And if my number of hits is below his the defensive value of his lowest ship, then I just don't do any damage at all. Um, so you do the air-naval combat first, and then if there is ground combat, then you do that afterwards. But most of the combat in the game is just air-naval. Ground combat is usually... I mean, there is some, but the the results of the air combat will then provide die roll modifiers for the ground combat as well. Ground combat is more brutal, um, whereas in naval air naval combat you're going to be growing, you're going to be getting either a quarter, half, or one. In ground combat, I think it's half, one, or one and a half, or maybe even two. I can't remember. So ground combat hits harder, but ground mm-hmm. combat can't hit planes and ships either. It can only hit other ground units. Sure. Nice. Yeah. What do you think? Of, what do you think about the game? I like it. It's fun. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I want to play it more. I can see, um, it. Uh, it seems to be really well balanced. I mean, from what I understand, competitive players really like it because it is it is very skill based. Um, because it is a card based game, part of that skill based is going to be knowing the cards, which I haven't played it enough to know all the cards yet. But that said, there are a lot of cards in it. In an average game, I'm guessing you're going to use a third of the cards. So you figure you shuffle them all up and you play with different cards. You're going to have to play a whole lot of games before you even see all of them, much less really know all of them and get to the point where you can expect cards to come up. So, so. That's dealt with just the randomization and the large number of cards. Each side has their own deck, so they're separate decks. You have a, an allied deck and a Japanese deck, and the two, you know, you're never going to do anything with the other player's deck at all. So um, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's fun. I want to play it more. Um, it has a really interesting bot that comes with it. Um, it's called Erasmus, and it's basically just a flowchart. Um but it's kind of cool because it's the flowchart is divided into different phases. So in in his notes, Mark talks about how it's kind of like a chess game. You've got your opening phase, your middle phase, and your end game phase. And the, the bot follows different priorities based on your position on the board and what phase you're in. So um, playing against the bot because it's a flowchart is not all that fun um, just because it, it kind of feels like work instead of playing a game at that point when you're spending 10 minutes to figure out what the opponent is going to do. And then you play your one card and it takes two minutes. That's always my problem with playing against flowcharts. Um, but I will say that it's really helpful for learning the strategy of the game, which because this is a good skill-based game is, is important. If you don't know what you're doing, you know, you can look at the game and you'll be like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So, but there are some specific things that if you want to win the game, like I said, as, as the allies, you need to be planning for your victory three or four turns ahead, or you're just not, I mean, you might as well give up if, if you don't see a path to victory. So, um, it is good. It's fun. I want to play it more. Um, it's not, it's not perfect. Um, my, my negative to the game is sometimes it feels a little bit puzzly to me. Like instead of feeling like you're carrying out a war, sometimes it feels like you're solving a puzzle. And that kind of goes to, you know, especially with the bots and the strategies. And you feel like there's a right move here. Um, I, I have these cards. I have six activations that I can do. Um, I'm going to have to do these things. Um, 
and and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I I kind of like feeling like it is some in some ways it feels less like I'm moving troops and ships around and more just like I'm playing a puzzle. Yeah, that sounds like a similar com- complaint to me that I have with Twilight Struggle, and and maybe it's not too similar, but feel like I'm doing this thing. Um, but I'd still. This game for a long time and has been ranked at, I need to get this to the table. I need to get this to the table. And I know it's got a fantastic Vassal module. Um, I know, uh, shout out to Francisco, who has done a fantastic yeah. job of making that probably one of the best Vassal modules on Vassal. I would assume, even without playing the game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he's he's very uh, responsive as well, because as I was playing it, I suggested something to him. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to see if I can put that in there. So nice. Nice. Yeah, I need I need to play it. What's funny is um, I've, I've told the story like my brother has shifting interest, just like everyone else. And Empire of the Sun is one that he's been interested in playing. But it's like, oh, man, that's that's a lot of work because yeah. I know because he's not I mean, just. He's not interested in reading rules, yeah. which is fine. I get that. It's not entry level, and it's not even a game where, like, if if I know the game really well and you just don't feel like reading the rule book, it's going to be really hard for me to just, you know, there are some games where as long as one person knows it, the other mm-hmm. person can just play because sure. the other person can say, well, I just, I want to do this. Tell me how to do it. Empire of the Sun is not going right. to work that way. Hmm. Unless you have some more to add on the game, what about recommended reading? Well, yeah, one of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tome, but there's a book called Eagle Against the Sun that's just, I mean, maybe the, the definitive book about the, the U.S. Pacific War. Um, uh, I'll have to look up the author of that. I don't remember his name, but I, I've, I've read that a couple times in my life. I read it first, actually, oh. when I was in the Navy, um, and it's, it's really good. So that's kind of, you know, big picture. There are a bunch of other books that are on my list of Pacific War books to read. Mm-hmm. Um, another book that I recently read, it's, it's actually about the Army's participation in the war, and it's called uh, Fire and Fortitude by um, John McManus. So, and he's going to be coming out with another volume of that book as well. So I don't know what the next one's going to be called, but it's going to be, I think, a two or who knows, maybe even three volume series about the U.S. Army's participation in the Pacific War. So that one is really well written. And it's really interesting because, especially me as an old Navy guy, I always think of that as a naval war. And I mean, it's really not fair to to downplay the 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 things that the army did in that war, you know, I mean, if you just look at like number of troops and operations and everything, the army did a whole lot more than the Marines did um, because there were so many more of them. But we Mm. always think of that as the Marines going Island hopping, the Marines doing this, the Marines doing that. So, so I don't have, I don't have anything specific to recommend myself like you. I've got a whole bunch of Pacific stuff I'd want to read on my Goodreads to read list. Mm-hmm. Um, I did rave about the Admirals, which is that's not Pacific War limited specifically, but it does give a lot of interesting information about the five star Admirals from World War II, yeah. which obviously would play a role here. The other two things that I would mention that, at least from the ground perspective, uh, if you've not read a helmet for my pillow and, um, yeah, I have read that. That's an excellent book. And what's, what's the other one that the Pacific is based off of? 
Um, helmet for my pillow and um, oh my gosh, it's gonna drive me nuts. And the other thing I was gonna say, so read helmet for my pillow and then also go watch um the Pacific uh, with the old breed. With the old breed, yeah, yeah, and I've yeah, yeah I've read both of those helmet from I like the old breed. with the old breed more. I just preferred Eugene Sledge's writing style more. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't know what what the difference was, um, but those are two fantastic memoirs on ground fighting yeah. in the Pacific, and then obviously the HBO miniseries is phenomenal. Yeah, and those are both specifically about Marines. Yes, yeah. right. And there's another one. It's not really about the battles or anything, but I don't know if you've read Unbroken, but that's really good, too. It's about uh, an American airman that gets shot down and captured and spends most of his time in Japanese prisoner war camps. I have not read it, but it sounds very familiar. It was a movie. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book, and it was good. Yeah, I was going to guess if it was a movie. Yeah. Good. Uh, well, if you have nothing else about the game, you know what time it is. It is that time. It is my, my least favorite time when I'm doing the review because <laughs> I'm on the spot. Well, have no fear because we are merely the arbiters. We are here just to be That's right. completely yeah. objective rankers. Um, so I was thinking as you were talking of a couple things. Mm-hmm. One, games that you've put on the list, which um, is really Red Storm, right? That was one that... Yeah you reviewed and then i also thought about okay like what other air and naval games are on this list because i thought those were the two things you could um compare these against so you've got bloody april which is the yeah. world war one red storm series game and zeppelin raider are both technically air and naval. so i haven't games. played either of those i'm gonna go ahead and put right. this above zeppelin raider yeah 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 <laughs> uh so let well i guess then let's start near the top then and use red storm as a measuring stick because obviously that's a game you love and know very well what do you how do you think this holds up against that so even if i never drop another bomb on mitch because he shoots down every <laughs> one of my planes i am still gonna play red storm every chance i get that game is just so much fun uh yeah okay. it's i'm gonna have a hard time beating red storm with anything Let's let's zoom down a little bit to Silver Bayonet. That's one we've both played. Yeah. So now I think we're in the right area. Um, okay. Yeah. Because and and honestly, when I was thinking about slotting this, I was thinking about right between seven and eight sounds good to me. Um, I like Battle Him. It's fun. Um, but I think Empire of the Sun is a better game than Battle Him. But that said, I don't think I would put it above Silver Bayonet. Silver Bayonet just it's got. It's got something about it. And I think I think it's that hidden movement that I just I can't get over with Silver Bayonet. Um, the theming in Silver Bayonet is so strong. It really feels like a Vietnam game with the, the helicopters being able to just show up anytime they want. Um, the, the Pacific War, it has very the I, when I talk about um, the Pacific War is a war. Empire of the Sun is a game. I love the theming with the air power zones of influence. Um, but like I said, sometimes it feels a little puzzly and that takes away from the theme to me. So, yeah, I think that's where I'd put it is between silver bayonet and battle him. I, I, um, I'm not going to contest that. I'm going to flag it because I absolutely need to play this game. And so we'll revisit it once, once I do, maybe we can even play together at one point. Um, because battle him's not a, 
perfect game. I love Battle Hymn. I think Battle Hymn is a beer and pretzel war game done very well. Mm-hmm. I also acknowledge that most of the scenarios in Battle Hymn are not fun. <laughs> scenarios really worth playing. I, I love I how they say bad. start like, with Pickett's Charge. I'm like, that is the no, worst scenario right, in the book. Right, exactly. That's my point. So you drop that, and like, I guess you could do the full second day, I think, so fun. Yeah. But the campaign scenarios are what make that. So I'm not going to contest that at all. Honestly, um, with, with Battle Hymn. I think the most p- fun part about Battle Him is getting into position. It's the stuff before they start fighting. So every time oh, yeah. I play Battle Him, yeah. I start at at hour one with like six units on the board, and I let them come on mm-hmm. slowly and get into position. Yep, I agree with that. Nice. Okay, so that's going to put Empire of the Sun. That's like probably the fastest we've ever ranked a game. Um, at number eight, so which falls below Silver Bayonet coming in at number seven and bumps Battle Hymn Volume One, Gettysburg and Pea Ridge to number nine. Will we ever see Battle Hymn Volume Two? Um, not looking good, but man, I hope to just because I want to play Shiloh. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I've never, I've actually never war gamed Shiloh at all. So yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah, I've played. Nice. I've only played one Shiloh game, but I do have Great Battles of the American Civil War Shiloh on P five hundred pre order. So. Nice. Yeah. Ooh, so that that brings up a good point. Uh, anything else you want to say uh, about Empire of the Sun? Um, let's see. Components are great. Um, it's got a mounted map, which I like. Some people don't like the mounted maps, but I do. Um, there's a lot of game in there. The rulebook is well written. It is very deep. I mean, like I said, this is not a game that one person can know it and just the other person just play and, and rely on the first person's knowledge. It just won't work. Um, the rulebook is very deep. There, there are little exceptions here and there that you will have to go back and you'll have to look things up, but you know, it's well-written. Um, it's got good examples of play. Um, there's a really nice sequence of play or, uh, you know, example of play that, you know, just shows, okay, well, this is where these guys are moving. This is how they're playing this card. And you get this many operations and all that. And then there's a lot of really good videos online too. Like, honestly, if once you, kind of think you understand the rules if you want to get into the strategy there's so many good resources out there just because a lot of really competitive players really like this game yeah the one thing i think i can add is that in i think it's fair to talk about this because sometimes i criticize games for having shitty components is empire of the sun is a wonderful production yeah in terms of components, I mean, just everything about it. It's it's very well produced. I mean, they all, they have the advantage of being on their fourth printing run, but uh, I think I bought the third printing. Whatever the most recent one is before this new one, uh, I finally grabbed a copy. So, yeah, it's definitely good. It's definitely a game that I'm going to be playing more. So it's it's that's good. It's good. You mentioned Great Battles of the American Civil War, which I've I have wanted to play the system. And I have bought games in that system. Have you had trouble figuring out how the hell to play it? I have not, (laughs) but I haven't given it a fair shake yet. Um, I'm very interested in Shiloh, but I did oversee a conversation that said um, that line of battle is much more smooth. Yeah. And that the great battle system is a little clunky, which makes it, I me mean, think it may be more outdated. Great battles is Berg, right? Yeah. And it, it, is. it feels like Berg. 
Um, okay. Yeah. So before, right before COVID hit, one of the other local guys and I, I mean, it was literally our plan. We're like, okay, next month we're bringing in Death Valley. We're going to learn to play it together. And we were both kind of going through the rules together. And then COVID hit and we couldn't meet in person. We're like, well, let's play in Vassal. And then we were both just like, you know, texting and emailing each other. Like, I'm not really grokking this. It's, I just, I don't, I can't quite wrap my mind around what I'm supposed to do here and there and how the activation system works and everything. And then the more you talk about line of battle, the more I think, eh, maybe I should try that instead. Now, I'm not going to give up on Great Battles of the American Civil War because I haven't tried it. Yeah. But I'm going to at least quit buying the products until I try them because Line of Battle is really good. The downside of Line of Battle is the only one you can readily get right now is to take Washington. And trying to find... That's the one with the zombie on the cover, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, Last Chance for Victory, which is Gettysburg, like MSRP was almost 200 bucks. And so it's out of print. I'm sure you're going to pay way more than that. I think that's what none but heroes would fetch these days. I have no idea. So you're limited to three games, but obviously the great battles has tons oh, yeah. and tons of games. And then there's gotta be a dozen at least. Now you could, now for line of battle were... though, they are still going to be putting out new titles though. Right. Yes, okay. and you can also go back and take the old uh, regimental subseries games, okay. like um, like this terrible sound, which is one I would really want to play. That's um, that's uh, Chickamauga, right? Um, and you can update those to line of battle rules. And I I don't know what the process is because this terrible sound came out in two thousand, so it's not too terribly old. I mean, gosh, I guess it's twenty year old. 20 years old now but um yeah you can update any of the rss games to line of battle so that does expand the the catalog some more one game i i did forget to mention i bought was pleasant hill the red river campaign do you know anything about the red river campaign rich it's no it's uh okay so it was in texas right mm-hmm. in, in red river and oklahoma and all that stuff basically it was a union drive to you know knock out some confederate positions in texas and it was like Every fuck up they tried, it just like everything went possible. They they tried to bring a boat up the Red River and like got stuck and just all this stuff. And so like ever since I read about it in Shelby Foot's deal, I was like, I want to play a Red River game. And sure enough, from 1986, there's a Great Battles of the American Civil War game. Now Berg's not credited on this, but it's listed as in that series um on the red river campaign and i bought that last month and so i think that'll be my entry point into um into great battles and i just maybe he wasn't involved in that one but he just made the whole series so i don't know how that works but my whole point with this was i'm at least gonna i may wait on getting shiloh until i can actually try out the system and compare it to line of battle yeah now those are infamous words for me because i've been saying all along like oh i want to compare all these tactical systems and see which <laughs> one's the best and i haven't done diddly well there that, was a so. lot of things this year that we said we were gonna do so <laughs> yeah well, sure yeah that's true but i there's a good chance i play this red river campaign game because um it's just kind of a wacky uh in my mind a wacky civil war engagement where um i have a book and it's called one damn blunder after another mm. and uh it's uh it's i don't know kind of like a book i started reading it about gettysburg i haven't read it yet but it's called uh a lot of blame to go around or plenty of blame to go around 
Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. mostly about Jeb Stewart, but the name of the book is <laughs> plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> One, I'm looking at it now. One damn blunder from beginning to end is what it's called. Huh. So, but if you ever go to read like Shelby Foote's masterwork, uh, he talks plenty about the Red River campaign. Nice. So this is the point in our show where we just talk about uh, whatever goes. Um, we talk about RPGs, train games, and books, movies, TV shows, whatever whatever floats our boat. Um, and one of my biggest pet peeves with podcasts is like when they don't start. I lost all interest in when diplomacy fails because he had like a twenty minute intro about like Patreons and all this bullshit. So <laughs> my point with this was let's move it to yeah. the end. Uh, and what I want to start with is, so we started this Twitch stream, uh, twitch.tv slash history table, and I put that on pause because what the plan is right now is my wife and I have uh, ordered a new board, ga- or a board game table for our basement. We're remodeling. It's just like really a, remodeling. a custom board game table or just a nice table that you're going to play games on? It is a custom nice table that we're going to play board games on. We were going to go the whole board game table route, and then we just started getting to, like, all right, here's all the things we would want on it. And the cost was the same as a nice custom table, but the quality wasn't Mm -hmm. for, like, I mean, unless you're going with, like, a Carolina game table or something like that, a lot of those are just, like, mass-produced, which is fine. I'm sure they're great tables. You need to put it together with a bunch of dowel rods and screws, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I... Let's go to a local guy, a local woodworker. And so we started looking around. We found a guy we really like. Oh, that's cool. And so that's that's where we're going. It's not going to have like built-in drink holders and like felt and all that stuff. We're just going with a live edge table, just something fun that looks nice. So that's our plan is to repaint the basement, um, get adequate shelving for all our board games, <laughs> and redo that. So when that's done, I'm going to relaunch the Twitch site. And then either I would hope at least bi-monthly do history on the table off the table. And my goal there is, and you are of course welcome to join me, is to have a Twitch stream where people are able to chat. And it's more about this other nonsense, train games, books, RPGs, all the other stuff. So all the stuff that's not related to history on the table goes on to history on the table off the table. And the point is, like, you can join the Twitch podcast live and interact with us, and then I'm going to capture the audio on my end. So that's what the future holds with the Twitch stream and what we're doing. But, like, I want to get the basement done and not have too many distractions and get our game room set up. So that's, a, that's the first thing I wanted to talk about. And uh, we'll see how it goes. The, the whole point is just to try to do a live show and just talk about all the other nonsense that interests me. Games and stuff. This is the stuff part. Yeah, this is the the stuff part for sure. Um, I already mentioned Historic Fest. That was the other big thing I wanted to talk about. Um, so I mean, it just it just made sense to to postpone. I don't think an event like that needs to be happening right now. Plus, who wants to wear a mask for for three weekend or three days over a weekend? Um, so we'll provide updates through twitter bgg the facebook group the facebook group is the best place to stay informed on that just search for historic fest kansas city or something like that and go with that um but that's kind of the unrelated news i wanted to talk about uh what about you you got any go ahead not really like i said mostly i've been studying for my pmp stuff so i noticed that you've been killing it with the 18xx stuff i keep seeing your invitations and everything and i want to join one of these days i will 
Yeah, so let's talk about that. There is a... I am very reluctant and kind of stingy with my who I support on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So 18xx.games is a something I do support and I think is worthy of supporting because it is the best web implementation of 18xx I've come across hands down. If you're familiar with Ambi and uh, Toby from the Dice Tower and... Ambi may be on some other stuff. I just know she does a bunch of Dice Tower videos, and they're both way into 18xx. And Toby came out with a web-based 18xx program that does a lot of the bookkeeping and everything for you. It basically makes it automated. And if I'm not playing face-to-face, this would be my preferred way to play. You can play it live. You can play it... um, like just on and on off the day, like semi live, you can do like play by email. It like gives you notifications when you're up for a turn. There's a tutorial and their whole approach was let's find some 18 XX titles that are good for beginners and start there. And so they're working with publishers to get their permission to get these games on their website. And you can just go play the full 18 XX game. And they're up to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, 18 XX games so far. And I've been playing these like crazy. I played some live games during the day, just pull it up and like have another window up while I'm working. And when I see it, you know, pings my turn, I I do my turn and just go back to work. That type of thing. I've been just all kinds of stuff. Um, I played a whole bunch of 1889 for the first time on there, which is a great intro game. 18 Chesapeake, which is a recent title. I would say that's also another really good beginner game. I've heard 18 AL was really good beginner game. It is. Uh, now, I just started that. Um, so 18AL set in Alabama. I would say that's a, a very good beginner game. I yeah. actually really like it still, though. Um, I think, is it 1846? Is that the one I played? It is. And that's on okay. there now, too. Okay, or cool. actually, it was it was right when I started. It was in alpha. I think it's now in beta, um, if not done. And so that's really well done. We've got a game of 1846 going. 1882 is one that's on there. It's a little more, I would say it's the least beginner friendly that's offered on there right now. I have not played Georgia and Tennessee, but they, they're they kind of in the same vein as Alabama. Um, so there's a whole range of things uh, that you can go. There's an 1830-esque one, which is 1836-JR, which is basically 1830, which is a a lot a game that a lot of people start with uh anyways 18xx.games they have done a fantastic job of bringing web-based 18xx to everyone it's free to play i i only mentioned the patreon deal not not because i'm bragging about doing or anything it's just it's i think it's something that they have put a lot of work work into and i just wanted to uh point that out that it's something that i feel good about supporting um so go check them out if you're at all interested there's like a step-by-step tutorial um that kind of takes you through 1889 you still kind of need to know a little bit of the rules the differences between the games um but usually it's not too hard to find the 18xx rules that you want to play that's pretty cool i like that it's um yeah it's it's definitely on my list of of stuff i want to get more into because I, I've only played the once and I really enjoyed it. But yeah, I know there are simpler games and good beginner games, but the whole 18xx thing is a little intimidating. And I think that's part of the reason um, 
I, I don't want to play like a play by email game. I would mm-hmm. I would want to play something live where I'm kind of mentally into it and focusing and you know what I mean? Yeah, no. And I, w- I would agree a hundred percent too. I don't think there's a tutorial on there, but playing by email would be a really, to me at least a very intimidating way to learn 18 XX. Yeah. Um, now, the upside 18xx.games has over something like board 18, which is what I was using before, is let's say you and I are both looking at a board 18 webpage and I take my actions. Like if you tried to do something, you've got to refresh your webpage and start over. 18xx games updates live. So it really works. Like if, if you wanted to gather up five people and hop into your Discord channel and just play a round of 18xx, this would be how I would do it you don't have to worry about having a separate spreadsheet open or doing this or that, or having a spreadsheet built. So like with board 18, not only does the game have to, the game map and pieces have to be uploaded to board 18. You also need a dedicated spreadsheet, uh, a Google sheet that someone's created to run that game. And so this is all just handled inside this app. You can almost, you can go pick up a game anytime you want over on the website. That's just good stuff. And they've really done a nice job. So props to them. Cool. Uh, So I just want to mention a couple other things that I've really enjoyed over the last month. You know, uh, baseball and hockey are back. Uh, Uh, Hockey's not back anymore for me. Yeah, no, same here. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Jets. Jets were eliminated in the Carolina too, right? You lost both your teams. Yeah, I did. Yeah. so hockey is over. The Royals are doing this like sometimes they can look really damn good, and then sometimes so, they'll look real. Actually, bad. go back to hockey for a second. Yeah, are yeah. you still gonna you still gonna follow hockey even though your teams are out? Um, I mean, when I say follow, I mean like actually watch games, not just like know who won. Depending on who's in the Stanley Cup Finals, yes, mm-hmm. but um, like so I I had the same thought. Like, am I gonna watch? Um, because we canceled our Hulu subscription, which we, we get NHL TV each year, but then when the playoffs start, you, ha- it's all on NBC SN, so you can't watch it on NHL TV. So mm-hmm. practically no, I'm done because we let our, our Hulu subscription go. I mean, if you just go look at who's left in, in my interest, I hate the stars. I hate the avalanche. I hate the Bruins. Yeah. I hate both those teams too. Right. I think I'm rooting for Vegas at this point. Or I mean, honestly, even Vancouver, they were, they were fun to watch as they were beating up on the blues. Love Vegas. I love the idea about Vancouver, but also Vancouverans are a bunch of assholes at right. Remember like they burned their own fucking city down because they lost. And so like, I want to like the Canucks as a team in principle, but I like am constantly reminded like, Oh yeah. Vancouverans suck. <laughs> Sorry, I just pissed off yeah. a small portion. So of to me, honestly, that's the difference between baseball and hockey. So with baseball, I'm, and I'll, I'll admit it, I'm kind of a fair weather Cardinals fan, but I'm really a Cardinals fan. If the Cardinals are playing, I'll watch the Cardinals. I'll listen to them on the radio. I'll follow them as far as they go in the playoffs. If the Cardinals are out or if they're having a bad season, which, you know, they just came back because they took like two weeks off because half the team had COVID or whatever. Um, but honestly, I don't care that much about baseball outside of the Cardinals. Whereas hockey, I'll, I mean, if it's a good game, I'll watch it just because I, I just love hockey so much. As long as we don't end up with like Boston and. Oh, God, no. Like Boston the stars and. In yeah, a, either in Dallas a, or Colorado yeah, against right. Boston would be the right. nightmare. I mean, I'd even be okay with like, I don't like the Islanders. 
But Actually, I that's who okay I was with... about to say. I don't know that much about them, but I kind of see, like seeing the new teams come up. Like if it was Vancouver and the Islanders, that'd right. be awesome. I mean, the Lightning probably deserve it from just a talent <laughs> perspective, but it also cracks me. Like last year when they got swept, it was just so yeah. aw- I was like, I was hoping. I would have liked to see Columbus, even though they're like, uh, they're not Carolina's top rival by any means, but since they, they play in the same conference, um, then, you know, it's hard to cheer for them. But also, I like cheering for the, uh, sorry, not not only same conference, but they're also in the same uh, division. Um, I like cheering for the small market teams. I mean, the Royals have always been a small market team, and so seeing someone like the Blue Jackets do well would be cool. Um, yeah. So you're right, like Vancouver, yeah, good for them. I, I would say that's, I don't know, are they small market? Uh, who knows? Uh, so, yeah, probably, just probably a bigger market than St. Louis, I would guess, but I'm not sure. You think so? Yeah, I think St. Louis is like 23. Hmm. But that might be American cities. Vancouver's not American, so I don't know how they would rank. So Right, right. And, yeah, I mean, they probably have a – I mean, hockey's like everything up there, right? So Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they're the last Canadian team in it. Yeah, and that's, that's another thing, too, is like always wanting the uh, the Canadian teams to, to bounce back and win it, which yeah. is – I mean, I kind of get that, but on the other hand, I mean, most of the players on the American team are Canadian that's anyway. So that's true. And also, like, I would never cheer for Toronto or <laughs> Cal- I, I hate Calgary too. Like when the Stars and Calgary were playing, I was just like, I hope both of you lose. <laughs> both. The only thing so. I like Cal- about Calgary is Kachuk, just because I was a big fan of his dad. Yeah, I have nothing nice to say about Calgary, so I just won't say it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I was sad to see Carolina out. I think they're going to be a good powerhouse. I think the Jets need to rebuild their defense. Um, it's hard to like say who's who's my favorite. Uh, my favorite player is on the Jets, but I think as a whole, I like Carolina as a team more. So, uh, but they're both out. So, anyways, I got really excited for baseball to to pick back up, and then I started playing a bunch of uh, Stratomatic baseball with the Negro Leagues, and I read. So I'm a huge Buck O'Neill fan. I love the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum here in Kansas City. It's one of the places I recommend people go when they come and visit. It's just really well done. And Buck O'Neill was a wonderful ambassador, not only for baseball, but especially the Negro Leagues. The biggest crime in sports is the fact that Buck O'Neill never got voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, especially when he was living. They made a special fucking committee and everything, and somehow (laughs) Buck O'Neill did not get voted in as an ambassador. Look, he wasn't the best player. He wasn't the best manager. He wasn't the best scout, but you want to talk about ambassadors for the sport. He was probably one of the single best ambassadors that baseball has ever had. So Joe Posnanski was from Kansas city and rode around a whole year with Buck O'Neill and just listened to his stories and went to these speeches and all this stuff. And he wrote this book called the soul of baseball, a road trip through Buck O'Neill's America. It's not a bibliography about Buck O'Neill. It's just a collection of, his stories and like their adventure of driving around for a year um and while while he was still living and it's just really good there's i loved it five out of five on goodreads for what it's worth i did the audiobook it was super well narrated and it just got me in the mood of you know internally i i do we need to be playing sports i think is a valid question and i'm not going to answer that here or not but 
I'm glad baseball's back, but this like this Buck O'Neill just listening to him and listening to these stories and then playing the Negro League Stratomatic stuff like really got me in the mood for for baseball and then my brother and I have been talking about my dad's old baseball cards and, and going through those and just doing stuff like that. Um in a in a time like this, I don't want to sound too sappy or anything like this, when everything's so serious and everyone's always at each other's throats, getting a taste of Buck O'Neill and hearing his stories was like the right thing that I needed. I can't recommend this book enough, and that's why I has nothing to do with history on the table, other than the fact that I've I've talked about Stratomatic baseball before in the past. I did finally play it and it's good. I do enjoy it quite a bit. Um loved it. Fantastic book. Nice. And then I don't remember why I put this on here. I listened to the Neon Rain. Have you ever read any of the Dave Robichaux books? I don't think so. That's super good. And I like it has nothing to do with this podcast, but I don't is know it if you sci fi or what is it? No, it's like um like a modern day hard boiled I guess it was probably written in the nineties, so like okay. hard boiled detective but set in the modern day. It's I stumbled upon it because Will Patton narrates it, and I think I've talked about that on over here, but I have a hard on for Will Patton narrating books. Will Patton is Coach Yost in Remember the Titans. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and then he's in Armageddon and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, yeah. He, he is single-handedly my favorite um, book narrator. He kills everything he does. And my Guilty Pleasure Young Adult series, which I've talked a lot, way too much about over on the um alcoholic adventure cabal rpg stuff we do so if you want to hear my thoughts on on that some more go over there there's a book called the raven cycle it's a young adult book it's all about this weird stuff um with like fantasy and missing kings and ley lines and all this really cool stuff he narrates that and like i'm glued to that series because his narration is so good anyways this was a really good um mystery i'm always reluctant to start those mystery books like where i see like the authors turned out 25 books in one series or something like that but this is good stuff yeah my wife and i are currently listening to a book called the promise of blood um which was just like a random recommendation by adam chance i'm like yeah sure i'll give it a listen and we're enjoying it so far i like books that have interesting and unique magic systems that's powder Um, made right is yeah yeah powder mage uh uh-huh yeah. It's the first one in that series. So I love the Mistborn books because it's unique, interesting magic system. I like the Kingkiller books, although I don't think he's ever going to finish them. Um, but yeah, this one too has a, a sort of an interesting setting and uh, a different magic system, which I think is cool so far. I think I have Promise of Blood in both audiobook and I've I've owned the paperback for a long time. Um, and it's just one of those, just like everything else I do. It's like one of those things. Oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> um, good. That's about, I'm doing all kinds of, I've got RPGs going out the, every corner. Um, if you're interested in the R, R, RPG stuff, you can go to aac.podbean.com. And uh, I'm not going to explain it here, but you can look for stuff where backdoor is the gm and that's the stuff i'm running if you're all interested in that but i've got man i've got so many ideas of things i want to do with rpgs and again it's just like i wish i did rpgs as a kid they're so fun yeah yeah that's that's another thing that definitely coming back to the table once i get this uh certification done i'm gonna i'm gonna run something i'm not sure what yet 
Oh, I, I meant to ask you, how's the, um, did you do any more with your family Call of, Call of Cthulhu game? No, we never got back to it. It's one of those mm. things where, you know, we kept saying we were going to, and then, you know, life, life gets in the way and sure. uh, we just, you know, <laughs> we ended up playing an extra game of Settlers Catan and I just want to rip my face off. So <laughs> <laughs> I almost completely forgot the one thing I really wanted to talk about other than the, like the <laughs> podcast news. Uh, Lovecraft Country. Have you watched it? No, I have not. Oh, Rich, it is so. But you so know, good. it's have you funny. Read the book? My, my no, but my phone has been blowing up this whole time because Adam keeps texting me about it. <laughs> oh man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta bug Adam about it. Um, so I have the book both on Kindle and on Audible. I haven't read it, but I'm like, I'm stopping watching it because I got to read this book first. It is great. It's like. It's so what is it on? Is it on? It's Google on HBO Max. Or? HBO. Oh, HBO. Okay. Uh, but you know what you could do is like just wait for it to be done and then pop your seven day free trial. Yeah. Uh, well, so, lo- I've already. Yeah, I used to have a subscription. I canceled it the day Game of Thrones ended. So. Yeah. Well, I mean that's the thing. I can like, get another. Yeah. Once once we're done with with that, and then we're going back to watch Westworld, and then my wife's mm-hmm. watching some stuff, and then I'm watching Perry Mason. Once well, I heard we, that's once really train- good. Oh yeah, if you like a good, you know, nineteen thirties noir, I'm I've only watched one episode, but it was real good. I liked it a lot. Um you know, once it's run its course, we'll drop it in you know, that was the deal. It's like, hey, once uh once hockey season's over, you wanna get HBO? And well, hockey's over, so we dropped Hulu Live T V and now we're on to HBO. Uh Lovecraft Country is phenomenal. Not only is it a good, solid Lovecraft horror, like to the T. It's got amazing characters. It's got an amazing cast. The sound is outstanding. The writing is phenomenal. And it's this wonderful commentary on, yeah, Lovecraft made all these monsters, but Lovecraft was also this awful human being that was a Oh, he was a terrible racist. human being. Yeah. Right. And so, great. We <laughs> and they Love- say that like at the beginning of the Call of Cthulhu book. They're like, oh, yes, H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft was terrible. Yes. We don't think that he was a good person, but here's some stories that he made. <laughs> so, and I, I guess this was his point, like what this show does, and I assume the book does, is also illustrates like the monsters in our real life, right? So you've got Cthulhu monsters appearing in the very first episode. The show opens up with Jackie Robinson driving a bat through Cthulhu's head. So <laughs> like watch that shit. Uh, it's also commentary on like the monsters in our real life. And it's really like, it's a good thing to be watching right now because like they run into towns with like sundown laws and all kinds of racial pushback and there's like a book that they're writing about where is it safe for uh for blacks to travel during the 1950s all of those things and so it's this really nice commentary and i think it's a good thing to be watching right now and my cthulhu interest is like at a peak high right now i cannot wait to do something with a call of cthulhu rpg yeah i like the system and i like i like the freedom that the system has to do as little or as much weird, crazy new supernatural stuff as you want. I mean, you can make it. I mean, you could, you could run Cthulhu. It would be weird. It'd be odd to do it this way, but you could do no supernatural stuff at all. You could just do it as like a gumshoe mystery kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Or you can add a little bit. And a lot of times I think sprinkling that stuff in is more effective than just dumping it on the players. Yeah. 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 I think it could be. I've, I've been like anything I can get for Call of Cthulhu. I'm like, I'm prepping. There's, I want to do like 1920s 
New York City, upstate New York prohibition. I want to yeah. do Louis- I really want to do something modern because I love the idea of mysteries in the day of the internet and cell phones. And, you know, holy crap, a, a, an elder god just appeared over Japan <laughs> and now YouTube is blowing up, you know? Have you looked at um, Peterson's Abominations for Call of Cthulhu? No, I haven't. It is. I, I thought that was. Is that just kind of like a monster manual, though? Is that basically I, what it is or not? I, I don't know how, because he has his monster manuals, right? Right. It is described as five epic tales of modern horror. And oh, I okay. think it's five RPG settings of modern horror using the Call of Cthulhu system. Okay. So, uh, maybe worth looking into. But, like, man, I could... Lovecraft Country is very good. And now I'm just like on a feed me more Lovecraft right now. (laughs) So how much of his, his actual stories have you read? I have read probably, Oh, well this is going to transition to something nicely. Um, probably three or four of them. I have like one of those Barnes and Noble leather bound collections. And I bought Mm -hmm. Cthulhu way back when, because it was kind of when, um, like Arkham, a little after when Arkham Horror was coming out and stuff like that, the Fantasy Flight game, um, and a buddy of mine had that. Anyways, so not as many as I should. Have you read a bunch? I've read probably about the same number. And, I mean, usually I come away from those thinking, huh, that that was okay. You know, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was interesting. So I've read um, or started to read a little bit of Clark clark ashton smith which is recommended as well for cthulhu fans and i thought his stuff was even weirder the (laughs) other guy is the guy who wrote the king and yellow stuff who is just as big a racist i think and that's robert (laughs) chambers and his stuff is even harder to follow but it's like it's also super interesting all the king and yellow shit that's going on um i bought a um Let's see, Lovecraft Historical Society. Okay, there is the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and they do a radio show, and it is called the um, Dark Adventure Radio Theater, and I have recently purchased two of these MP3s to listen to. And the cool thing you can do is you can just buy the MP3, you can buy a CD, but you can also get like these prop documents. And so I heard about this on actually one of the former hosts of um, Rally in the Valley was talking about it. And he's like, What are those guys doing now? Are they going to record again? I I noticed you called him a former host. (laughs) Well, I say that because I think they're done. Like their Twitter's gone. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, But Michael was talking about these radio shows. And it's like, Oh man, a Cthulhu radio show sounds amazing, but then you can buy it with like, okay, this this comes with a telegram, a photograph, a map, uh, a partially used matchbook, um, all this other stuff that you pull out and interact with as you listen to this radio show. And they're not, they're not very expensive at all. You can get some like really cool shit, but I think you could just get like the MP3 for like 10 bucks and you can do, they have a whole bunch of the Cthulhu stuff so i ordered a couple of those to listen to uh to get some more cthulhu stories that's cool yeah Yeah, that's one of the cool things about cthulhu is when the uh when the game master goes the extra length and and provides some good props it really does that to it 
it just begs for it, right? Like it seems yeah. like a setting and system that you yeah. you need to bring that stuff. So yeah. I said Cthulhu in general. They're they're actual Lovecraft stories. So uh, oh, okay. some of the stuff I haven't read, I'll I'll listen to as a radio drama. Yeah, that's uh, if you can't tell a little bit. I'm super into the Cthulhu stuff right now. And then it's like I'm I'm busting out the Arkham Horror Living Card game again, which I haven't picked up in a year. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I sold I mine. I played it a few times and finally ended up selling it. And then like right after I sold it, my daughter's like, "Where's that uh that Arkham Horror game? I want to play that with you." <laughs> <laughs> like really? No. Well, we got rid of it. Yeah, I gotta wait till my brother and I get face to face. I've got one buddy that really likes it, but he lives uh, probably an hour, fifteen minutes away. And then my brother likes it. I tried to play with my wife, but my character died, and she was the only one left. She's like, "I don't really care." <laughs> Just like got up and walked on the table. And yeah, we haven't gone back to it since. So she's not a fan, but uh, I would play it solo. Yeah, that's how I always played it. I think I think I did play it with her one time, but yeah. Nice. Anything else you want to chime in with for general nonsense and shenanigans? General nonsense and shenanigans. I think I'm all out of shenanigans. Mm. Yeah, me too. The goofy shit on the walls. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. have you, uh, have you and your Casey guys even breached the talk of face to face yet, or not even getting there? I I haven't myself, and I haven't reached out to the group. I do know one of our members, like his normal weekly, eighteen XX and board game group is is up and running. Um, I I haven't, but I'm also more cautious than that's that's kind of so. how I am. Um, no one is really asking about it, although I think a couple people have done some very small scale stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a group, we're not meeting. Although, if you want to drive to St. Louis this Sunday afternoon, we're having a social distance happy hour with some guys that you know. Oh. Yeah. Paul is going to be in town. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Well, no, I look forward to the opportunity to game again. And I would uh, I would play, like, one-on-one and stuff with – and it would just depend on the person. You know, my whole approach has been, like – our in-laws are still watching our daughter one day a week because we need it. But I also mm-hmm. know the things that they're doing. Like, I just wouldn't play games with anyone. But, like, my brother's also been really careful. So, uh, I think in the right situation, if I really got the urge, I would do it. But, I mean, I'm still doing fine with Vassal and Roll20. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where we are. I haven't really, really even started thinking about when we're going to go back to face-to-face. So, Right. We'll just see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, well, that's that's all I got. Yeah, me too. Great. We should do oh. this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely we should. <laughs> we'll be back for episode 18, and then probably in another year or so, we'll get Designers on the Mic 3. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a sneak preview for feature game next month? Uh, It's probably going to be None But Heroes. None But Heroes, nice. Which, so um because the whole the whole point of that was to gear up and get it ready for not that we're even like i don't think it's a major anniversary well no it's not 1863 so it's not we're not even hitting like a a multiple five anniversary um i just wanted to like have it ready by the anniversary of Antietam. so yeah um, i'm like that with dates too though i remember when i was playing atlanta is ours uh you know face to face with a friend a while ago and um and oh, actually, no, it wasn't face to face because it was during COVID. But I remember, you know, we switched the the date to the next one. I'm like, oh, hey, cool, that's today. We're playing today. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
Antietam was 1862, by the way, not okay. 63. Gettysburg was 63. That's my mistake. I don't want someone correcting me on that. <laughs> anyway, so what's did. what's interesting <laughs> is Antietam really is the battle that spawned me even wanting to do a uh, a war game podcast in the first place. Um, and so that's why I was like, I finally want to get none but heroes to the table and really experience it because that's that's really what started like oh i want to do a deep dive in antietam and do all this cool shit and then i got lazy um and like well that'll never work so i'm finally getting to it which will be cool nice well, i look forward to it yeah all right then well uh if you have any questions comments concerns any of that stuff history table podcast at gmail.com it's history table podcast at gmail.com you can also of course find us on twitter i am at history table pod at history table pod there's an instagram with a similar name probably history table podcast or something what about you rich i am trapeer jr on twitter that's usually the best way to find me perfect trapeer jr (laughs) All right, then. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Good night.